Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to begin by doing something a little different than we usually do. I'd actually like to begin by going back to what we were talking about last week before we get on to our study for this week. Last week, uh, Jesus gave us uh, some lessons on what is effective prayer look like? What does prayer look like that actually makes a difference? If you remember from last week, we learned there are two components for that. Effective prayer is prayer that is done by faith and prayer that comes from a heart of forgiveness. So let me just briefly review that. When Jesus says effective prayer is prayer that is done by faith, he means that, that when we pray to God, we must not doubt that God actually listens, God actually cares, God does want to respond and often does respond to our prayers. We're, not, we're to pray uh, and not doubt when we pray. Jesus said that we need to realize that God can even move mountains in response to our prayers. That's another way of saying God can even do the impossible in response to our prayers. But then as we widen the uh, angle of our lens to the rest of Scripture, we learned a couple other things about prayer, that when we pray in faith, we also have to pray realizing that we have to submit our will to what is God's will when it comes to the answer our wisdom to what is God's wisdom in the answer, and also our timing to what is God's timing in the answer to those prayers. So effective prayer, we learn number one, is a prayer that comes in great faith, that God does hear and does respond. But the other thing we learned that is very important is that effective prayer comes from a forgiving heart. Um, in other words, we are people that have been completely forgiven by God, and we have to be completely forgiving towards others like God has been completely forgiving towards us. And we also learned why we are to be such a forgiving people. That's because we are such a forgiven people. And the kind of forgiveness that God has shown to us is just monstrously huge. We often lose sight of that. We learned this from Matthew 18, where it, Jesus sort of says it this way. It's like we have been forgiven the $6 billion debt that we owed to God. How can we not forgive others the $6,000 debt of sin that they owe to us? In other words, God has forgiven us of a debt of sin that is so great that only the death of his own son could pay for it. Uh, how can we not be forgiving towards others? Because we have been so incredibly forgiven by God. So we are a super forgiving people because we are a super forgiven people. But last week, in the interest of time, I had to sort of stop there, and there is a, a part I would wanted to say, but we just didn't have time to say, and this is what I'd like to pick up on and begin with this morning, because it's a very important topic that's associated with this issue of forgiveness. If you have your outlines, it's for the very first piece on the very top. And here's what I'd like to point out to you. There is a difference between trust and forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift, but trust is earned. 
All of us have been given the gift of forgiveness through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift given to us. Now, we give that gift of forgiveness to others. But while we give the gift of forgiveness, trust is something that other people earn and that other people can lose. There is a a especially important thing to understand with that. Uh, The reason I want to say this is sometimes people collapse trust and forgiveness together into one um, item, and they're not necessarily one item, especially abusers. Abusers like to collapse forgiveness and trust together. What they say is, if you forgive me, that means you have to completely trust me once again. And they may, that may not necessarily be true. You can forgive someone fully and completely, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should return to full trust in someone. Uh, let me give it to you uh, through a, a financial analogy. Let's say that you have a, an investment broker and he works for you and invests your money and you're trying to build up your retirement and you've put thousands of dollars with your broker. And you find out one day that your broker calls you up and he says, hey, the investments went bad and we lost everything. Now, after you get yourself off off the floor, you go to meet with your broker and and he says, hey, I was trying to uh, do some investments. They were sort of risky investments. It it didn't work out. And uh, could you please forgive me? And as you wrestle with that, you realize you have to forgive them. You have to forgive them completely and fully. Even though it's a hard thing to do, as Christ has forgiven you, you forgive them. But that does not mean you have to continue investing your money with them because they've lost your trust. They are not wise in the way they're managing finances. So you see how forgiveness and trust Uh, Oftentimes people collapse them together, but they don't necessarily always have to go together, nor should they go together. You can forgive someone, but maybe have lost trust in someone. Let's move from my financial example into a relational example. And this is a hypothetical situation, but quite honestly, it's very close to some real situations that as a pastor I have dealt with over the years. Um... Say you have a a wife, and she has a husband who ends up consistently drinking at night. And he becomes abusive towards her at night. And she says to him in the morning, please don't drink anymore, because the things you say, and I don't even feel safe with you anymore. And he feels terrible and says, can you please forgive me? And so she forgives him. But he goes right back to drinking every evening once again and threatening her, and being abusive towards her. Now, in the situations I've dealt with in the past, I know there's one particular person that actually moved out because she says, I can forgive him, but I don't longer feel safe with him, and I've forgiven him many times, but he doesn't change. I cannot trust him because I'm not safe anymore. And that's an example of how forgiveness can be completely offered, but yet trust can also be lost at the same time. So I wanted to point that out because this is a very important thing. When last week we talked about forgiveness that we give to people as Christians is complete 
It's full. That's what Christ has called us to forgive. But forgiveness, even when it's complete and full, does not necessarily mean we have to instantly return to full and complete trust to the person that we have forgiven. And that's a very important distinction I want you to know that I did not have the chance to make last week. So why we leave the idea of forgiveness in last week's passage, as we move on to the next passage, we find that uh, as we look at the leaders of the the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they're not going to be really interested in forgiveness. Actually, they have their heart set on something quite the opposite. It's called murder. So I'd like you to turn in your text to where we're going to be picking up our study. That's Mark chapter 11, verse 27. While you're finding that place in your copy of God's Word, let me remind you of what is the situation in here. Uh, This is actually a continuation of the situation that we looked at two weeks ago. That was the super frozen Sunday where almost nobody could make it to church. That was the time when Jesus uh, cleared out the temple of the money changers and the animal sellers. And what we saw in that situation was uh, actually, there's, it's, it's probably different than most of us had in our mental picture of our mind. The money changers and the animal sellers, they were in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And Jeremy, go ahead and put that up there for us. That was the graphic we used. The courtyard of the Gentiles is that big open area um, that's not necessarily the temple in the center, and it's not Solomon's portico on the outer edge. It's a huge area. Geographically, uh, this covers 35 acres. Some of you have been to Jerusalem, know this better than I do, and the size of these places. And you think of Jesus being in this courtyard of the Gentiles, which had a bunch of money changers and animal sellers in it. I mean, that's a lot of place. That's probably a lot of people. And Jesus single-handedly drives these guys out. In my mind, it's like Jesus single-handedly clearing out the entire Clay County Fair. Maybe call it Jesus gone wild, if you want to put it that way. Uh, So Jesus has returned this uh, courtyard of the Gentiles from being a shopping mall for animals and money changing, and it's an open mall. It's a place where now uh, people can come to pray. It's a place right now, after this has happened, that... um, People can come and hear God's word being taught. It's being returned to the purpose that it originally had. Incidentally, as we finish up that text from uh, what we looked at two weeks ago, it ends with these words. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes heard it and what Jesus was doing there and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And I told you they were a long way from forgiveness. They're focused on murder. They're trying to figure out a way to bump Jesus off. And you can sort of understand it a little bit. Uh, Jesus, who do you think you are? We were getting a financial kickback from all these people that we had put in the courtyard of the Gentiles. We were getting money off the sale of uh, the, the pigeons. We were getting money from the exchange of the coins. We're lining our pockets, and you come in here. You didn't even ask permission. You didn't try to get a permit. You just drove everybody out, 
cleared the whole thing out and now you're in the middle of the whole place teaching. What do you think you're doing? And that is where our text picks up. So stand out of reverence for God's word and I'd like you to follow along with your eyes and your copy of the word of God as we read verses 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You may be seated. Well, the key issue in this text is really one word. The issue is authority. Jesus, who is giving you this authority, how dare you take over the most holy place in Judaism, which is the temple? How dare you don't seek permission and you seek authority over the most important people in Judaism, which is the Sanhedrin? You were just walking in and taking over. Where do you get the authority to do this? That is the question this passage seeks to answer. And I'd like to answer it in, uh, in two sections. The first thing I'd like to do is actually just look at the authority of Jesus topically as we just run our finger through some of the other New Testament passages. Then I would like to look at the authority of Jesus textually by returning to this passage and unpacking it a little bit for you. So let's begin topically by looking at the kind of authority that Jesus holds. On your outline, just point one. Jesus claimed incredible authority. Jesus claimed all authority in the universe. He hasn't made this claim yet, but when he's at the end of his life, this is the, cl- the claim he makes. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, he's saying, I hold the position of highest authority in the entire universe. I am the absolute top of the authority food chain. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus holds incredible authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And then we see this during his life. It says Jesus taught with authority in Mark chapter 1, 
And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So Jesus' teaching style was notably different from everyone else's teaching style in that day. In that day, the scribes and the religious leaders needed to use footnotes. They needed to have a bibliography. You remember how your teacher would never let you get away without having footnotes and a bibliography? You had to quote your source of authority. Jesus is the one guy who didn't have to have either. Because Jesus is his own source of authority. As he taught, he recognized himself as the highest source of authority. You can even see this, like for instance in Matthew chapter 5. But you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, there's that authority, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So you can see Jesus right there sees himself as his own source of authority. Jesus cast out demons by his authority. Mark chapter 1, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. There's that same theme. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. If you've been with us for the balance of this series, you'll immediately find your mind running back to Mark chapter 5 with the, the Gadarene demoniac. And remember that no one could bind him. No one could control him. No one could exercise the demons out of him. And yet Jesus shows up on the shore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and the Gadarene demoniac comes running down, falling with his face before Jesus. And merely at the words of Jesus, all that incredible legion of demons, approximately 5,000 in numbers is a Roman legion, all are cast out because of the authority of the words of Jesus. I told you, Jesus holds incredible authority. Jesus forgives sins by his authority. Mark chapter 2, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk. And immediately, right prior to that, the, the religious leaders said, wait a minute, Jesus, you don't have authority to forgive sins. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. And Jesus says, to show you I have authority to forgive sins, I heal this man, take up your mat and walk. Meaning that Jesus is God. He cast out demons by the authority of his word. He forgives sins by the authority of his word. He teaches with authority, incredible authority. Jesus will execute judgment by his authority. And he has given him all authority, or given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The point here is that God the Father has given Jesus the authority that at the end of history, when everything is wrapped up, everyone will be judged by Jesus. Now, if we're Christians, that is not a judgment of salvation. We're saved by Jesus. But we, our works are judged by Jesus to determine our reward in heaven. So Jesus is the judge that determines our reward. But for those apart from Christ, 
Jesus is still the judge. He judges them to determine their degree of eternal punishment in hell while he determines our degree of eternal reward in heaven. What kind of incredible authority Jesus has. He is the ultimate judge. And to sort of uh, just give you the uh, emphasis here on the authority of Jesus, look at this next point. Jesus has authority to die and to raise himself from the dead. He said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This means that Jesus, when he was being beaten, when Jesus was being whipped, when he was being disfigured, as Isaiah says, to the point of being beyond human recognition, the whole time he had complete and total authority to stop all of it. As Jesus hung on the cross with those nails piercing his hand, the strength of those nails was nothing more to him than a piece of yarn would be to us. He had all authority to come off of the cross. And he even had the authority that he willfully took his last breath. He willfully died so he could die in your place and my place because he loves you and me. But even more amazing is when Jesus was dead, he has so much authority that he rose himself from the dead. Isn't that what it just says? And I have authority to take my life up again? That's incredible authority. Authority to rise from the grave. In fact, as I said earlier, Jesus is absolutely at the top of the authority food chain. You could say, uh, bar one thing. The only other authority out there that would be over Jesus is one that is equal to Jesus, but one that he has willfully chosen to submit himself to, and that is God the Father himself. The only authority in Jesus' life was God the Father. John 8, 28 says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So Jesus is in complete sync with the Father, doing nothing else other than what the Father would want done. Now that is Jesus' true identity. That is Jesus' true authority. But at this moment, he has cleared out the temple. At this moment, he hasn't sought a permit for a teaching series in the temple from the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they don't understand the authority of Jesus. They want to rebel against the authority of Jesus. They think they are the ones who are actually in charge. And they don't know who they're dealing with. This is the why that Jesus doesn't need to get permission from them. So in this text, as we dive from the topic of Jesus' authority into this text which talks about Jesus' authority, let me tell you that it's not just this text that deals with Jesus' authority. It's actually most of chapter 12 that we're going to be getting into for the next few weeks. Today is more of the academic discussion of Jesus' authority. 
Next week, Jesus will give a parable uh, the par- explaining why the leaders have actually lost their authority. And then he's going to give three stories after that where he will specifically uh, rifle in and uh, talk to each of the different religious groups there and why they have lost their authority. The first story will address the Pharisees and why they don't have it. The next will address the uh, Sadducees and why they don't have authority. And lastly will be the scribes and why they have also lost their authority. But that is what will happen in the upcoming weeks. Right now, we're just going to take this small portion uh, on this academic discussion on the authority that Jesus holds. So here we are in the text. The religious leaders challenged Jesus' authority. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? So this is the day after Jesus has cleared the temple of the uh, money changers and the animal sellers. He is walking around the court of the Gentiles that we just saw in that graphic, this 35-acre area. And um, while the Gospel of Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus was doing on this time, the Gospel of Matthew, or excuse me, the Gospel of Luke, in a parallel account, tells us what Jesus was doing when he was walking around. And this is really cool. Luke chapter 20, verse 1, very same section, different gospel. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him. So what we have is Jesus is walking around the temple courtyard. Now that it has been cleared of all this mini-mall stuff, and what he's doing is teaching the people. He's using the courtyard of the Gentiles for what it should be used for, a place where people can come to hear the word of God. But even better, he's not just teaching the people. It says in Luke, we just read, that he is preaching the gospel to the people. Isn't this great? Jesus is running a Billy Graham crusade in the temple. Kicks everybody out the day before, takes it over the day after and tells people about God's incredible love. He talks, I'm sure, at that time. He talked about the reality of sin. I'm sure he talked about the reality of judgment. I'm sure he talked about the futility of you and me and anyone else trying to extricate ourselves from the power of sin and the consequences of sin. But I'm confident since he was talking about the gospel, he talked about the good news that what we cannot pay for, which is the debt of sin that we owe, and what we cannot release ourselves from, which is the power of sin in our life, that by calling out to God, he would make a way. The one who is the good news was busy right in the temple courts preaching the good news. Isn't this amazing? That's what the temple courts were supposed to be used for. And Jesus was not just preaching good news, but he was a really good preacher when he did it. After all, he is Jesus. Uh, Luke tells us what the crowds were like at this point. It says, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. 
So put yourself in the Jewish leader's shoes. Jesus has come into Jerusalem with a triumphal entry. Thousands of people cheering for him. The next day, he comes into the temple, which you have filled with money changers and animal sellers. He drives it all out, opens up wide the 35 acres of the court of the Gentiles. The next day, he is there preaching and teaching. He's taken over the whole thing. Now, do you understand why they're upset? By what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are to come into our house that we rule and control and just take over completely? That's the reaction. The text specifies a little bit of the people who uh, came up to Jesus. It says they were the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Let me tell you who they are. They're actually the members of what's called the Sanhedrin. Go ahead, Jeremy, put the graphic up there. The Sanhedrin is a council of 71 uh, Jewish leaders that are essentially the highest ranking body in Judaism itself. These are the guys that interface between Rome and Israel, and they make the decisions. It consisted of the chief priests, which are the leading priests, the scribes, which are essentially the lawyers of Jewish law, and then it says the elders, who were the high-ranking and powerful lay people in that community. So thank you, Jeremy, for the little picture of what the scribes would look, or the, excuse me, the Sanhedrin would look like when they met there. So these are the guys, the Sanhedrin, the top of the food chain authority-wise in Judaism, who are upset with Jesus and what he's doing. Because he didn't even apply for a permit. And he just took over. What Jesus does here is Jesus challenged the religious leaders to make a decision that would demonstrate their authority. And then he would give them an explanation of his authority. So Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And this is a little bit like the impeachment that we watched on the news this past week. You know, if you get to call witnesses, well, then I get to call witnesses. <laughs> it goes back and forth the same way. If you're going to ask me a question, according to the rabbinical way things were done, then I get to ask you a question. In fact, you get to go first. And I'm not going to answer your question until you answer my question. The baptism of John the Baptist, was it just from man or was it from heaven? In other words, was John the Baptist just a nutcase in the wilderness who ate too many toxic bugs? Or was he actually a prophet of God? You tell me, what is the source of his authority? When you tell me the source of his authority, then I'll tell you the source of my authority. And John the Baptist was pretty interesting because if you look at him, his entire life was focused not on him, it was focused on preparing the way for Jesus. Remember that? So John the Baptist and Jesus sort of come together like a package deal. They're shrink-wrapped. In other words, if you accept John's authority as a prophet, then you have to accept what he said about me. The only way that you can say that what I, I don't have authority is if you 
diss John the Baptist and don't accept him. Look at what John the Baptist said about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist said, I am making straight the way of the Lord. I am the one who is preparing for the coming of the Lord. In other words, if you believe what John the Baptist said about me, you should have no questions about my authority. (laughs) Or a little bit later, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me a man comes who ranks before me because he was before me. Jesus had identified, or John had identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even though John was biologically born before Jesus, John the Baptist said that Jesus had origins that predated him. In other words, Jesus' origins were from eternity past. So Jesus says, who is John? Was he a prophet of God? who just spoke to you the true word of God? Or was he just a nutcase in the wilderness who you can't believe? You tell me what you think about his authority and I'll tell you about my authority. Other things that John had said, he must increase, speaking about Jesus, and I must decrease. Or so blatantly, John chapter three, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. So what we see is John the Baptist has very clearly laid the foundation for Jesus' authority. That Jesus is indeed the very Messiah, the the very Son of God. And if you accept John the Baptist, you have to accept me. Now, what do they want to do with this? We pick up in verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then there's a blank. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So if they admit that John the Baptist is indeed a prophet of God, which is what is the popular belief of the people, they know that things will not go well for them. Because it will also mean they have to admit who Jesus is. And if they turn around, and excuse me, if they, tr- if they don't admit that Jesus, or John the Baptist is a prophet, things will not go well for them because everyone believes he is a prophet. In fact, there's a blank as to what they believe would happen if they said that John the Baptist was just a bug-eating normal man. And th- the fill-in-the-blank is actually filled in in the Gospel of Luke what they're concerned about. It's this. If we say from man... All the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So Jesus has them boxed in. They don't know which way to answer. If they admit John is a prophet, then they have to accept the authority of Jesus. If they say John is just a bug-eating nutcase, they're afraid that the people will actually stone them because the people have accepted John as the prophet that he actually is. 
And at this point, if you stop and think about it, you realize that the religious leaders of Israel are actually admitting they're very unqualified to lead. They're not the leaders who will tell the people the truth. They're politicians, political hacks that will only say and do what they need to do to keep themselves in power. In other words, they're afraid to say what they believe is the truth about John the Baptist because it will cost them maybe literally their life or possibly even just politically their life. They want to stay in power over the people. They're not real leaders who would determine the truth and tell people the truth. In fact, John, the Gospel of John says this, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And then it says this, So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Remember, this is a shame and honor culture. If you know much about shame and honor cultures, the one thing you don't ever want to say in a shame and honor culture is, I don't know. And Jesus has just forced the leaders, the leaders of Judaism to say they don't know who, where the authority of John the Baptist is. It's sort of like checkmate. Another stick in the eye. Now, Next week, we'll pick up more as we study this, but I wanted to figure out uh, just where we are and how we can apply this. And this is what came to my mind as I was wrestling with it this week. Very clearly in this passage, we know that Jesus has all authority in the world. But the question is, does Jesus have all authority in your life and mine? Jesus may be the one who has all authority in the world, but the application is, does Jesus have all the authority he deserves in your place and mine? Let me just give you a couple thoughts on that. Um, maybe you're a teenager. As a teenager, I know what it's like for teenagers when you're out with your friends. There's a lot of peer pressure there. If your friends are doing something, uh, you're going to be doing something, at least most likely. If you're a teenager and you're struggling with peer pressure, you need to ask yourself, Whose authority am I listening to? The authority of my friends or the authority of Jesus? Jesus has all the authority in the world, but does he have all the authority he deserves in my life? Or my friends have more authority than him? Maybe you're a, a parent. The question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, if Jesus has all the authority in the world, how does he have all the authority in my home? Or how is my home different from other homes out there? Are my children learning uh, that Jesus and what he says is more important than other things? Are we stopping and taking our children and dialoguing about modern day issues from the Bible with them to show them the authority of Jesus and how that applies to how we engage this world? Are we leading our children and maybe taking the time to pray with them and pray for them and tell them that the real authority in this world is not who's in the White House or who's in the House of Representatives. The real authority who's in charge is Jesus. And we have an audience of one and that is the one we have to please with our life. 
if Jesus has all the authority in the world, what does our checkbook say about that? Does our checkbook say that as Jesus has or the authority in this world, that he also has authority in my life? Or does the checkbook say he has no authority in my life? Remember, he's one day, he's the one we'll all stand as a judge before because he is the authority in this world, the one we must please. As we uh, close the service, as we begin to take out uh, communion, when the elements are passed for communion, I would like you just to wrestle with this question of authority. If Jesus has all the authority in the world, does he hold the position of authority he should in my life? When the elements are passed and you have the bread and the cup in your hands, I want you to wrestle with those questions in silence and see what the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Does he have the authority he deserves in your relationship with your friends if you're a teenager? Does he have the authority he deserves in our home? And does he have the authority he deserves in the way we spend our time and our money? Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you hold all the authority out there. That we have really in this life just an audience of one. It's just you. You're the only one we must please. You're ultimately the only one we must honor. Forgive us, Heavenly Father, for at times uh, not giving Jesus the authority that he deserves. Forgive us for uh, being like the Sanhedrin and wanting to challenge him oftentimes and go our own way and, and do our own thing. And as the elements are passed, And as we hold the bread and the cup and we ponder and we think about what great sacrifice, Jesus, you made to save us and love us, I pray that you would help us to give you the position of highest authority in our lives once again in a fresh and a new way. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.